Thanks for joining Reader House Author Roundtable. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. We're going to start off with Peter Lamage, a lawyer in Fairfield, Connecticut, whose journey began in Albania, where his perception of socialism has sounded alarms as to the direction of where our country is headed. The name of his book, My Father's Prayer, A Refugee's Continuing Search for Freedom. It pretty much is about socialism and uh, what socialism does to a nation and to human beings. It was the fact that when I got involved in politics every year and I was seeking the nomination for governor as a Republican in the state of Connecticut, I realized that we had so many people in our state who would agree to have a socialistic society. And when my brothers and I escaped communist Albania 30 years ago, I never thought that I would live in the United States one day and see so many young people who are completely misinformed and misguided as to what socialism can do to our country. And, and that's what really prompted me to put this, put this in writing and make sure that my kids and other people would be able to read uh, uh, sources, firsthand sources, as to what this kind of, you know, ideology would do to our country. Tell you one thing, when, when my uh, three brothers and I escaped uh, Albania, at that time Albania was still a communist country, and my parents, uh, uh, my uh, siblings that I left behind, seven siblings, nieces and nephews, they were taken to an internment camp or a concentration camp, and my father was tortured to death because oh. he had failed to notify the government, the communist government of Albania, that his sons wanted to escape and search for freedom and opportunity. And, and Lord and behold, we found the freedom and opportunity over here. And it really scares me that one day we're going to lose it for generations to come. And then, look, when you read Arnold Toynbee, it's an interesting expression that he uses, that he says that great civilizations are not murdered, they commit suicide. Are we as a nation at the verge of committing suicide? And this is the debate that I'm having with people when I talk to them and when I speak at various events that we're committing suicide by allowing the left-wingers in our country actually to promote socialism without, you know, properly explaining what it did to Eastern Europe, what it did to Germany, what's doing to China, what it's doing to Cuba. I mean, we don't see people from, you know, uh, uh, Republican form of government such as United States escaping and going to social, socialist countries, but we see the opposite happening every day. It really perturbs me as a first generation, you know, race here to see this threat approaching the future of our children. And that's, that's what really got me so energized to write the book. What's your biggest well, fear? What do you see happening that, that frightens you the most? Thank God for the founding fathers who were able to put, you know, guards to prevent the establishment of a tyrannical government in the United States by having, you know, checks and balances and the electoral college and all these things that we have in the Constitution. But when you listen to Bernie Sanders, for example, or Ocasio-Cortez, or, you know, some other leftists who are members of the United States Congress or Senate or House of Representatives, and they are seeking the nomination for the presidency, and they openly speak about socialism, and they call it democratic socialism, and you see these thousands of young men and women following them, I mean, blindly following these people and wanting to establish socialism here and redistribute the property and the language that they use, it is the exact same thing that my brothers and I left behind three years ago in Eastern Europe. 
Well, I guess your message is resonating because you've sold quite a few books just through speaking engagements, right? Uh, I've been doing that. The social media, I've been doing events actually uh, all over New York, especially in the, you know, uh, the borough of New York, uh, Westchester County. I've been, you know, doing things. And we sold over 10,000 copies so far. And every penny that we're making out of this book, we have established a, a non-for-profit called Albanian Connect. And we're trying to have, help some uh, new arrivals in the United States. These are immigrants and refugees who legally came to the United States and they are trying to settle here. They are mostly Christians from Northern Albania, and so we're trying to spend that money to help these people settle in the United States. Boy, we should all be so gracious, Peter. Thank you. Betty M. Rafter is a Southerner, and she says Southerners tell stories, and her dad had some good ones. She wrote a few of her own over the years, but at the insistence of her family, she wrote some of the best in her book entitled The Biggest Moonshiner. I'm a great researcher because I also was a, a licensed real estate appraiser. So I did a lot of research. I heard all these stories, but I wanted to authenticate them. I knew my dad had moonshined. I mean, we had heard those stories. I did remember hiding out out a tar paper shack and running from the feds when I was three and four. I remember that well, but I didn't know all the details. So in researching, I get this big newspaper article, 1929, that my dad was allegedly the biggest moonshiner on the East Coast. So that shocked me. <laughs> so I started digging for more. And I'm very interested in history and history of the glades, you know, where I grew up, Bell Glade, Pahokee. Then we moved into West Palm. And my dad was very uh, involved in uh, politics. So, but my sister kept saying, you, and the kids kept saying, you've got to write these down. So I thought, well, you know, I love to write. I mean, I've been writing since I was a kid, but just, you know, uh, things for funerals and weddings. And, you know, so I thought, well, maybe I can do this. So I started taking classes. And about, I guess, seven, eight years ago, I really started writing the book. You took writing classes. I did. I took a lot of writing classes. And uh, I sat there and I thought, what am I doing here? I don't even know the nomenclature of a writer. You yeah. know? <laughs> wow. But, uh, what an interesting story. Picking cotton in Alabama, living in a tent. Lila, is that your mom? Yes. Your father was a character, huh? And she put up he, with him. Well, I guess she saw the good side of him. You know, like most people who are have faults, they also have some redeeming uh, characteristics. And he certainly did, we found. And in the end, he was really the catalyst for keeping us all together. And after my mother died, you know, he was determined to live until my youngest sister, who was only 18 months old when, he, when my mother died, he was determined to live until she grew up. And after her 18th birthday, he passed. So what happened to your mom? When she was 38, she married very young. She died in childbirth. We had a cow and um, she was holding the rope to the cow and a dog ran to the cow and she jerked and she fell on her stomach. She was uh, almost full term and she hemorrhaged. And uh, that seemed to be the turning point of my dad trying to do the right thing. And and her last request was for everybody to get along and, and for your dad to keep the kids together. Exactly, yeah. We were in the children's home for a while, the youngest ones. My dad had a heart attack. We older ones, as we got married, we would take the younger ones out of the home. In fact, we still are extremely close. What a great story. Are you out talking about this? 
actually in the beginning I was doing readings of senior resident places to kind of get practice, get over my nervousness. I didn't anticipate. I thought once I wrote the book, that was it. And then I realized, you know, I'm getting letters and telephone calls from people I went to school with from Kentucky and North Carolina and Georgia and Jacksonville. And so I thought, well, I guess I probably had better try to promote this a bit if it seems to be uh, an inspiration to people. That's Like I said, I wrote it for our family to know our parents and to know what it was like during the Depression, mostly to know that there's no despair in their DNA. Oh, I like that. No despair in your DNA. <laughs> Thank you, Betty. Alec Farhamund is a 17-year-old homeschooled student who started writing short stories about two years ago, and already he's got his first published book. It's entitled Boy of the Woods. It's kind of funny, actually. I was taking out the trash one day. I We cut down all these branches, and they were sticking out of the garbage can. I just The idea just hit me of the Boy of the Woods horror book. It's pretty amazing. It starts in Freetown, Massachusetts, where 25 years ago, Ted and Vanessa's eight-year-old named Johnny was chased by boys into this mysterious forest. And then after the boys vanished from the trees, Johnny meets a mysterious man who says he will make him like a superhero, but will actually transform him into a cannibalistic monster. So Johnny, he accepts this offer because he's being bullied so much that he wants to be more powerful than anybody else. And so he accepts the offer and pays the deed and disappears into the woods. Now in the present, Ted and Vanessa are driving home after having dinner with his brothers and sister. As they all drive by the forest, one of the trees picks up their cars and throws them into the forest. And when they all get out of the cars, they have to survive from these terrifying creatures and really discover what really happened to Johnny. There's flashbacks and... uh, it really dives deep into what what really is this monster that he became. And the father actually has a has a haunting past with it when he was a kid as well. The father's connected? Yes. He had an encounter with the this kind of monster when he was little as well. Does his son know that? No. Okay. The this mysterious man does though, that he's the reason why this monster brought tragedy to his life when he was a kid as well. His uh, nephews, they were out playing with by his treehouse. And when he goes back in the house to get his camera, and when he comes back, the monster is holding them in his hands and just looking at him and says, I'll see you again, Teddy. And then he just vanishes. And then 25 years later, this all happened. So what did he do to deserve that? I'm actually working on a prequel now, right now to like how the man became what he is. It's going to explain a lot what led him to Ted. Like he chooses certain people like to punish. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I thought that would be a really good aspect to his character. Nice. Yeah. It's got a lot of layers. I like that. Yes. So this process of writing, do you enjoy it? Oh yeah. I love writing. I love, especially horror. I love, that's my favorite genre. I love horror movies. I've enjoyed them ever since I was a kid. I'm, I am active on social media. I'm advertising my book and the websites to buy it on through Instagram. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking that will help out a lot, you know, advertising, getting it out to people, you know, posting illustrations from the book and 
and links and like the cover of the book, you know, available on this website, you know, just to give them an idea of what, and I give them a little description of what the book is about. Well, you keep writing and I'll keep talking to you. Okay. All right. Well, every book I'll talk to you. Thank you. Eileen French has been writing poetry in California for more than two decades. And finally, someone encouraged her to write a book about living with autism. It's entitled Camellia's Discovery. Um, well, Camellia, the autistic child, loves butterflies. So it's about beautiful butterflies that are her friends. And they talk to her and sing to her and give her butterfly kisses. And she meets this little boy beside a sycamore tree. And he wants to be a part of her world. So when he asked her, she said, yes, I'm on condition. And he says, what is it? And she said, well, you have to listen more than you talk. Then she listens to the butterflies, and they dance above her head. And then her friends were dancing in circles, and they were dancing in circles so they could see everything at once. And um, the story ends that she falls asleep underneath the same sycamore tree that she met her friend under. That's very sweet. Thank you. You love people, you love animals, and you want to learn. You want to learn more about life and just love of simple things like butterflies. The best thing that can happen is that a lot of kids hear the story. And the main thing is that they learn more about autism and how autistic children are special. Fair enough. And to be expected as such. Are there any places where you could read this story? I could probably go to libraries. Yeah. Wouldn't you think? Yeah, and have like a little reading, a little question mm-hmm. and answer. Well, it looks like you found a new purpose. Yes. Michael Grayson was getting ready to feed the cattle in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas when we caught up with him to talk about his book entitled A Single Shot. I'll tell you, I, uh, I did 20 years in the Coast Guard, and um, the time that I spent to begin with in the Bering Sea of Alaska and around the Aleutian Islands doing search and rescue cases. And then from there, I, I got transferred to a Loran station in the Arctic Circle and spent a year up there with 26 other guys. In between all this, as you can imagine, there are many stories about different bars, sexual things that went on in the Arctic and and other places. Alaska was very different in the 70s, and I can only imagine that it was more interesting back in the 60s and 50s. And then uh, when I came back to what we called the real world in San Francisco, I got stationed on an 82-foot search and rescue boat. And that was probably the most difficult duty because uh, nobody calls the Coast Guard on a flat, calm day. 
Right. Okay. So here's an 82 footer out there getting beat to hell with a bunch of guys on board that we, we were tight. We were close. This book is very much so true. And there's a few personal stories in there, but there's some very funny chapters in it. Um, that's how I got into this was I was told by people that I was telling these stories to, and they'd go, you should write a book. And I turned around, and I said, me? And it was difficult. It took me some time to get it down. And it's a small book. I, I read quite a bit of other authors, and I found that a lot of them water it down, you might say. Yeah. So I tried to keep it interesting and keep it moving. Some of it, the Coast Guard, I don't think is going to like because I talk about some of our unprofessional moments okay. and things that went on uh, uh, in Alaska. That, uh, th by the way, this is not a child's book. It's got some sexual things in it, as you might imagine. It's the first night that I was stationed in the Arctic Circle, uh -huh. I see a guy running down the hallway in a black negligee, a man, okay, uh -huh. with three other guys chasing him down. They chased him down, knocked him down. The corpsman comes up, gives him a shot in the arm, okay? He passes out, and they drag him back to his bunk, okay, and sack him out. And I'm sitting there looking at this, and the chief turns around and says, hey, this goes on all the time. This guy's going to be, you know, he's going to be transferred here soon. And so I look at this going, no, the Coast Guard would not allow this. Well, it turned out it was a prank. It was all for me. I mean, you're in the Arctic Circle. You're with 26 other guys, and you're seeing this going on. <laughs> it was a prank. Okay. Got you, Michael. Yeah. It was it was interesting. And, uh, you know, things like that went on. Uh, and I can't I can't describe the things that went on. Um, it, you know, you got to read it out of the book. All right. All right. That's a deal. Thank you so much, Michael. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Bye -bye. Have a great day. Does the name Sachs ring a bell like Goldman Sachs? Well, meet Bobby Sachs, who had no idea he had any connection to that Sachs until now. The name of his book, Closure Has Come, Goldman Sachs. It's just about things coming to a closure in my life and me figuring things out and getting to the bottom line and realizing that my uncle and my grandfather lied to the family. What happened? As a, as a teenager, I sat on the beach with my family, all my Sachs family, and I turned to my aunt and uncle and I say, aren't we Goldman Sachs? And he says, no, that's not us. They changed the name. So I believe that. So I got distracted by a beautiful woman, by having children with this beautiful woman. And I didn't even hear or even see, read about Goldman Sachs anywhere until 2016 when I was walking through Center City. And I walked by a building and I saw an inscription that said Goldman Sachs. And I backed up, double back. And I go, S-A-C-H-S. -S. So how did they change the name? So I got on my computer and I did research, 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 and figured out that we're at Goldman Sachs. Yeah. My cousin, the son of my uncle, was an all-star quarterback at, at Ryan High School. He could have made it into the NFL. But my uncle said, no, no, no. I got something bigger or better for you. I want to put you in the stock market with Goldman Sachs, and you're going to trade Goldman Sachs back and forth. Well, my cousin graduated high school. He took him up to northern New Jersey. No, Billy married a rich girl. 
on the stock market, works for her dad. And we all believed that for years. Finally, in 2016, I realized, no, she married into the riches. You lied to the family, hid all the wealth, and lied to the rest of us. And that's why I wrote the book. I lived like the average American. Believe it or not, my mom was from job to job on welfare. My dad always had a job and always had slightly some money, but he wasn't wealthy. I'm 44 years old. In 2016, I was 41. But for years and years and years, I always had this auspicious feeling about to become rich. Why do I have this feeling inside my blood? Now I know why I was born to figure this out and expose this to the public. What do you gain by exposing this to the public? Being a celebrity. Yeah. You want to be a celebrity? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So why don't you go work for Goldman Sachs? Absolutely, I would. I would put on a suit, have an SUV come pick me up, an Escalade or a Tahoe come pick me up, take me down to the office, and I'll start to work for them. Certain my language, but I'll go, yeah. So what are you doing to tell people about this? Well, I'm not that braggadocious about it. How are you going to become a celebrity if you don't tell people about it? Put it on Facebook. And I put it on Twitter, but I'm not overexposing it, if that makes sense. Okay. And I mailed some stuff to the president, to the CIA. I mailed a flyer to L.A. producers. So I'm trying, I'm doing some small steps. The best thing that can yeah, happen. Yeah, what do you want to see happen right now? That my family be compensated. Every single sack that was lied to be compensated. Not even me. Everybody else could be compensated for being lied to. All right, Bobby, thank you. Jane Becker was a dental hygienist outside Philadelphia before she went back to school to become an RN, and somewhere in there she found time to write her book, Grandmother's Wish. What made me just actually decide to write it is when I was babysitting my grandchildren. I, I absolutely love babysitting my grandchildren, and one night when I was babysitting, I looked at them and I thought, you know, these are the good old days, but the kids don't realize it. You know, this is this is so much fun having little kids and the fun things they do and the fun things they say. And, and my book is a, uh, about a grandmother looking at the child and saying, you know, it just takes you back to when your daddy or your mommy was a baby and the things we did and the, the good times we had and it's gone. You know, it's it's just a memory now. And we look back at pictures and we remember times. We remember that Easter. We remember that Christmas or we remember that trip. And you say, oh, if only I could have a day in the life of my former self and my former children, you know, and that's what it's about. If you could go back for a day and just have the day to play with your children and do all the things that you did when they were babies and not worry about the laundry and about cooking dinner and about cleaning and about all the things you have to do, but just enjoying your children. That's what's fun about being a grandparent. You really can enjoy those days. Right. I remember my mother saying to me, don't worry about the toys. So what if you eat late? Don't worry. You know, just 
you know, relax, be with them, get on their level. Don't, you know, don't try to keep everything in order. Let things be out of order for a little while. It's okay. And she was 100% correct. I know, but you know that feeling when your house is just like a wreck and every drawer is open and there's wash all over the place and your kids are like screaming, you know, when you just, yeah, it's just so hard to let go. Yep. And that's when you're just trying to get through life. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's over. It's gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've I've read it to a few people. I've we've we've put it on some social media. Um, I did get a letter at Christmas time that made me cry. Uh, uh, someone sent me a letter. They got the book as a Christmas gift, and it made them cry. You know, looking back, because she was also you know through that stage in life, and it made her cry. And that that made me cry. Like wow. It touched someone's heart. Hey, you can't ask for more than that. Thanks, Jane. Yolanda Acker is a virtual paralegal. She homeschools her children, and she's published her first book entitled The Haunting of Addie Longwood and Other Short Stories. In high school, I used to write poetry, um, and I just decided to convert my um, poems into short stories. I added a little bit of more details, and uh, I actually became a fan of horror movies, and, you know, I liked horror I also like sci-fi fantasy, too, and paranormal. So, you know, it kind of worked better for me that I just started to convert the poems into, like, actual stories. And I didn't think that everyone had to, like, write a whole 350-page novel. So I started writing short stories, which allowed me to put it into the book format that I have now into various short stories in one. So tell me about The Haunting of Addie Longwood. It's basically about a girl. She moves from one town to another, and she's actually uh, had the gift of seeing ghosts, inherited the gift from her parents, and they moved to a small town in Maine called Ellsworth, and she stumbles upon this girl that was friends with this other girl that lived in the small town that she and her family moved to, and Coincidentally, she was able to solve the mystery for the town because there was a kidnapper that terrorized a lot of 12-year-old girls and, you know, did a lot of things to them and they came up missing. So there was one particular girl that her spirit engaged into her because she had a gift to actually communicate with ghosts. So over the course of the time, she was communicating with the girl and she allowed the town to find out that the actual kidnapper was a neighbor that was living in the small town and no one was aware that it was him. Are the other short stories connected or are they completely different? They're all different, but that was the main one. And um, actually, The Haunting of Addie Longwood was my first uh, manuscript. I had started like around the end of 2009, 2010. So I you know, checked out Page Publishing, and I saw a lot of great reviews about it, and um, it's marvelous. Like, you know, I just love everything about it because it took me a while to actually find a real publishing company that I was comfortable with, and I went through a couple that didn't suit my financial needs, and I didn't like uh, what they had to offer until I came upon Page Publishing, and, you know, I'm really satisfied with the work. Thanks, Yolanda. We really appreciate the feedback and honestly couldn't ask for a better way to end this edition of Reader House Author Roundtable. Thanks for listening. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. 